Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. So, as we're recording this, we do not know who is president yet. The results are still being tallied. Yeah. Right now, I think it, last time I checked, it was 264 for Biden and 213 or 214 for Trump. Yeah, it's 264, 214. And it looks, like, it looks like it's going to be Biden. I hope it is. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm going to be totally honest here. I didn't vote for Biden. I voted third party because I knew Biden was going to take New York for sure. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to put my support behind a platform I actually believed in. The Green Party, Howie Hawkins campaign looked good. I liked everything that I saw. So I don't know. I wanted to vote in something I actually believed in. If I was in a swing state, I I would have voted for Biden. Because I don't, I, you know, I wouldn't want to risk things. I just, I don't, I like progressive candidates. I was a big Bernie Sanders supporter. I made several small donations to his campaign. That's where I fall. I like progressive candidates. I'm not a fan of corporate Democrats who essentially promise that nothing will change, which is pretty much what Biden did. But yeah. for sure, I want Biden to win over Trump, and I hope he does. See, I'm I'm in the the boat of I'm very like fiscally conservative and socially liberal. My biggest thing is, and this is the one thing I, that bums me out about Biden is he's not for school choice. I, I think school choice is a huge thing, especially for kids in urban areas. Um, and I, I really don't like that he's very he's very aligned with the the public teachers union. Keep in mind, my wife is a public school teacher. I on on a daily basis would get anywhere between three and four ads for Biden from the AFT, from the NFT, from the teachers unions my wife is a part of. Um, she got handwritten letters from people asking her to vote for Biden. Um, and my biggest thing is, is like our educational system is profoundly broken. Yes. And, um, you know, I think when people talk about, you know, like people, uh, talk about social inequities or things that are not equal for other people. I think the biggest thing that at least I can talk about is in terms of education. For Um, sure. And every day you read an article, millions and millions taken out of this school district or cities cutting X amount of dollars from school districts. So when, when people are saying defund the police, you know, why can't we just take the money out of police instead of out of education? Why? Yeah. And I think the, the, crucial thing is is like taking the money out of i i don't understand why why do the local police near me have a tank 
Yeah, and police don't actually do anything unless you're a wealthy person. If you, I don't know, or if unless it's like a murder. Sometimes, if you're a certain demographic, suburban police for sure is a is a job where you. What I've seen, at least in my neighborhood, is you respond to domestic disturbances, um, low level drug and alcohol offenses, and the majority of your job is around vehicle citations speeding yeah. tickets running lights turn signals not full stop at a, at a stop <laughs> sign and it's like you know i i understand that you know those things are important to you know road safety but at, at the same time it's like look this is clearly a revenue issue you guys are just doing this to get money um yeah one cool thing i thought and this is something i saw that i was like I really am anxious to see how this plays out. New Jersey legalized um, recreational marijuana. And didn't, didn't Oregon just decriminalize a bunch of stuff? Oregon decriminalized several hard drugs. Which ones? I, I can't name them off the top. I, I literally, I, I'm, today's been such a hectic day with school and the kids. Uh, I read a headline that said. I think it was meth and heroin and something else. Yeah, so I have an announcement to make. I'm moving <laughs> to, to Keith, Oregon. Keith will be relocating to the Portland area. Yes, and uh, I will be doing the podcast from there, and it may not be weekly anymore. It may not be monthly anymore. What do you think? No, I'm just kidding. But I, uh, uh, So real quick, I'm coming to you live from St. Cloud, Minnesota tonight. Phenomenal. How is yes. it? You know, it's it's okay. I'm I'm here... I am functioning well. I used to be a mess on these trips, and now I'm extremely efficient. I'm showing up. I'm working all day. I'm getting everything done. The assignment's going well. I'm on schedule. It's all good. I got some food on the way here, which is great because I haven't eaten since breakfast time. And a few cliff bars I had at lunch. And it's all good. And we're here. We have Jim Ward on the show tonight. We spoke to him last week. Excellent, excellent conversation. I'm excited to show you guys that. And yeah, everything's all right. What's up with you? Not much. Uh, school is school. Uh, the girls are doing awesome. They're still in virtual academies, still upstairs, just working. I get to eat lunch with them every day. And uh, everything's going really well. We're actually starting to plan the girls' birthdays at the end of the month. Oh, yeah. Uh, November 25th. So we're doing that. Uh, we're starting to plan like a small party. It'll just be like my mom and Kelly's mom and kind of like, you know, small, like a smattering of my siblings. Um, but, uh, that, uh, Oh, I just had so my, my father who passed away when I was young, his birthday was just, uh, November 3rd. So, yeah. uh, I always try to do something to try to like, just think about him like during that day, especially at night, like when I have time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I read some stuff that he had written in college. I read a couple passages out of some books that I knew he loved because his handwriting's all over them and they're marked up and underlined and annotated. And so uh, it was a kind of, you know, bittersweet moment of like, you know, uh, it's I'm really sad that he's not here, but it did definitely put a, a very fine point on the fact that. I love the fact that I am here for my girls. Like it, it was definitely like, all right, well, he didn't get to be here for me, but I'm definitely going to be here for my girls. And that's, that's a huge part of like feeling good about what we're, you know, we're, we're stuck at home, but 
I'm so glad I'm stuck at home with them. Like, and I'm so glad I get to spend the time with them that I do and play the games. Like, even though I fucking hate the games that they play, but <laughs> <laughs> so how do you process the loss of your father, especially around his birthday? I mean, you were so young when he died. What, what is it like? It is a weird, okay. So there's a couple things I used to do. Um, and it was always counterproductive and I felt shitty the next day uh, for a bunch of different reasons. But I think one of the things is my dad was a, a casual like whiskey and scotch drinker. So mm-hmm. I took it upon myself, especially in my 20s, to get like shithouse on Jameson uh, because my father was Irish. So uh, well, my my whole family's Irish, except for my mom, who's a you know half Italian. But um, like literally, uh, I, I would do that, and then I would think I was you know somehow reconnecting with him in that way over like you know my drunkenness. And what I've realized is what a what a shitty waste of time that was. And uh, the more I think about my dad and how efficient and how smart he was i look back all those times and been like he was looking at me at from if he was able to look at me he was slowly shaking his head from side to side like (laughs) the fuck is this kid doing like he thinks he's doing something profound and deep and he's really just being an asshole like he's just making a spectacle of himself and um i think the the thing now that i really try to do is just uh processing it for me is now just like, look, we have today, we have this moment, we have our initial experience, like the, with the experience we're having right now is all we have. Um, because like everything else, nothing is promised to us. Like tomorrow isn't promised. You don't, you don't know if this is, you know, this is Nan's last Christmas. We don't know. <laughs> this is one of those <laughs> fucking things that we don't, we don't know. Um, and I, I really do feel like, especially around this time, because it's the beginning of like that kind of holiday season of Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Um, I, I definitely get a little bit more introspective about where I am personally and and what I'm, what is holding my attention? Like, where am I spending my time and what am I doing? And I think that is a huge thing. I, I like made a conscientious choice today. Like I had a half day from school. Every Wednesday is a half day, right? So um, I went to uh, get, work done and i was like you know what this fucking work will be there tomorrow like i'm going upstairs and playing with my kids it's it was decent enough outside to put like a small jacket on and go run around and i was like let's go play with sidewalk chalk let's go fucking run around in the driveway let's go ride skateboards let's play what better tribute to your dad than spending time with your kids in a loving and productive way. Precisely. Way to wrap it up, dude. That was it. Yeah. Like, that's what I was trying to get to. It's like, it, <laughs> that was, it. that was a nice, that was very concise. Yeah, no, that was it. Like, I think that's the biggest point is like, it, it comes back to, um, realizing that you, you're in the moment and experiencing that moment and appreciating it. So, you know, that's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. I, I have experienced, I lost a friend to an overdose a couple years ago. He died around when I had a year clean. And yeah, I think I process it in a normal way. Sometimes I don't think about it at all. Sometimes I'm really sad about it. Sometimes I think, oh, I wish he was still around and, you know, he could be helping himself like I am now. And he was starting to try. So it's kind of a normal thing. But in terms of my older brother who died when I was young, 
yeah. I don't ever think about that. It's like it's like completely shut down. It's like almost like I don't even allow myself to think about it or feel it. It happened the day before my 16th birthday. And around my birthday, I get nutty now. Like I noticed last year on my birthday, I was out and I reacted in a negative way being out with some people. And I realized it was because of that psychologically. So I don't know. It's just, uh, it's going to be something to overcome, I suppose. I think that's one of those things that like, um, especially, so I, I think that the one defining difference between your experience and mine is your brother's death was unexpected and sudden. Yes. And my father had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So we knew that he, he, you know, from the day he was diagnosed until when he passed away was a roughly nine to 10 month period. Um, so we knew it was coming. Um, I mean, as a five-year-old, I wasn't prepared anyway. Uh, my mom right. kind of talked me through some of it, but, um, yours is a, is a, um, is traumatic for a bunch of different reasons. Oh yes. Uh, the loss of a father is, 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 is awful. But at the same time, um, losing a sibling especially and your your brother was very close in age to you right you're still like a year and a half apart right yes um and you guys were really close you guys no <laughs> oh you weren't <laughs> not at, not at all i barely oh. talked to him the last couple years of his life that's a, so there might be something there with that too yeah yeah there's a lot to unpack there mm -hmm. but i'm not going to be able to do it in the minute that we have left to talk here so i'm going to say this folks we spoke to jim ward from Sparta and at the drive-in. Sparta is one of my all-time favorite bands. It was an exciting conversation. We talked about a lot, and I'm excited to show it to you all now. So here it is. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Jim Ward. Woo! Jim, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. Uh, how's it going? How, how are you doing today? Um, I'm all right. Yeah, just sort of trying to stay safe here. Things are we're a hot spot in the US, so where do you reside? I live in El Paso, Texas. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So is it's a hot spot right now? Yeah, we had 1100 cases today. Oh, Lord. today. Oh man. Yeah, we're only 670 or 80,000 people, so it's a pretty significant number. Oh my word. Yeah, that's that's a huge percent of the population. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we're we're in bad shape. Is everything shut down there? I'm in Brooklyn. No, no. Everything is no. No, no. I live in Texas. We don't give a fuck about anything. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. It's it's disturbing. Yeah, like from uh, national to state to local politicians, we've been ill served by by these folks, and we've been fighting. As my wife and I own a restaurant, so we've been sort of pretty vocal about keeping things locked down, even to our detriment, and um. It's on deaf ears for sure. What kind of restaurant? You want to plug it? Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a at least fifty percent vegan restaurant. So we mm -hmm. do both omnivore and vegan, and you know, like good coffee drinks and a good bar, and everything from scratch kind of thing. That sounds great. What's yeah. it called? It's called Eloise, named after a Wes Anderson character in Rushmore. Ah, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's one of my favorite movies. Thank you so it, much for mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all based on Wes Anderson or inspired by, I'd say, like the decor. So. Oh, get out. Yeah. That's still one of those uh I actually go back to Royal Tenenbaums at least once or twice a year 
And yep. it's still one of those movies that uh, it's there's parts of that movie that are unbelievably hilarious. And then there's other parts of that movie that are just gorgeous. And then there's some parts that are just so shockingly sad. Like you're just like it, it runs the gamut. It's such a it's such a beautiful film. Yeah, I agree. I, I like his work a lot. So, Jim, uh, did have you always lived in El Paso? Yeah, born and raised. I'm fifth generation, actually, El Paso. Wow. Oh, nice. So tell us about growing up down there. How was it? Set the scene for us. Um, it's a, we're, we're a pretty socioeconomically lower class town. So we're, mm-hmm. we're sort of a port city, right? Because we're on the border with Ciudad Juarez, which is our, our Mexican city. It's our neighbor. It's basically one giant city separated by a river, mm-hmm. um, kind of a river. It's a pretty small river now that it's dammed up, but the Rio Grande splits our countries and mm-hmm. our cities. But the community is is very interconnected, right? So a lot of people have family on both sides. It's we're we're tied together through economics and culture, and um, you know, basically everything. Air, the air we breathe, the water we drink, all comes yeah, from right. the same place. Right. Um, so I grew up uh, near this pretty large park in the central part of town called memorial park which creeps into my songs occasionally and yeah right away guns of memorial park jumps into my head so when i was a kid they used to have these big sort of like i don't know what the technical name of these guns were but they were like these big artillery guns from world war one um that were sort of like immortalized at the top of the park and we used to go and play on them um and we would call them the guns of memorial park and that's why that's where that song title comes from Nice. Uh, specifically, me and my cousin Jeremy would go and, and uh, fuck around in the park. Loads, climb trees, run around, build forts, hide out, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it sounds like pretty standard suburban kid stuff. We used to build the, uh, the forts in the woods, and we would go in there in the wintertime and make a little fire in this pot. It was, it was fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have much woods here, so that's like the best we could do is like this park. So... Living in the high desert, there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of trees. Definitely no forest. So. Right? Yeah, definitely no forest down there. I was there once in 2002. I was on tour with a friend's band, and I really wanted to go over the border to Mexico because I heard there was good party time there, but uh, no one would go with me. Yeah, that's a shame. I would have gone. It's uh, yeah. we've been going for years. It's kind of the thing that we used to always joke about early on when we started touring the U.S. is that. So you can basically start going to bars when you're like 13, 14 years old in waters, um, especially before it got real dangerous. So when I was a kid, you could go. I was I was straight edge, so I didn't go to waters till I was like 17. Mm-hmm. Um, but like my wife was going when she was like 15 or whatever. And kids would go and party. But the thing is, you learn bar culture, right? Yeah. So then uh, we would go on tour in the States and we were like 17 or 18 years old. Um, but we're all well advanced of like normal bar culture when you're 17 or 18, because we've grown up in this sort of, you know, the drinking age there is 18. So we're totally normal bar going folks. You know what I mean? (laughs) Already at 18. Well, I already over it. Well, yes. Eventually I learned bar culture, but I, now I've never, Oh, one time I've been asked, I've been kicked out of a bar one time ever. And the ironic thing is I wasn't even that fucked up. And plenty of other times I was fucked up, but, and I never got kicked out, but I was, it was suggested that I go home a couple of times. So that was nice of them. I've been kicked out plenty, plenty of times. (laughs) Some pretty good ones too, actually. Give us the best one. 
Um, so we started the, this is like one of my favorite getting kicked out of a bar stores. We were starting the, it was either the first or I guess it was probably the second Sparta tour. Mm -hmm. Maybe the first Sparta tour. Either way, um, we, we flew to Seattle for a show and I had the night off and Coldplay was playing at the Paramount. Mm -hmm. So this is probably pretty early Sparta. So probably the first record. Um, and so I, I walked over to the show and I had, you know, those are friends of mine. So I went over and went backstage and we were hanging out. And then me and Guy went out on the town after the show. And we ended up at a bar in Seattle with a piano. And I started playing uh, a Coldplay song on the piano, just super drunk, just trying to make Guy <laughs> laugh, really. Um, but the bartender thought I was making fun of him. And so oh, they, like, oh, they no. physically threw, like, literally threw me through the front door. And I, the whole time I was laughing and I was like, no, 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 I'm like, I'm with him. I was just trying to make him laugh, but you know, it didn't, I don't think it came off that way. I think it came off <laughs> like it was a total asshole. So which, fair <laughs> enough. I mean, he, yeah. he, he, I think he thought it was funny, but so then I had to wait out, I had to wait outside for him and the people we were with. <laughs> oh man. Did they pick you up by your pants and your shirt, like in cartoons and just toss you out? <laughs> I think it was just fully like every limb of my body was taken by somebody and like, because I think they were stoked he was there, right? Which I can yeah. understand. And then they thought I was sort of making fun of him, which I wasn't. But I can definitely see how uh, they thought I was. So it was fair. <laughs> I wasn't mad. I was like, no, you. I mean, you're right. This is yeah. You're totally right. So tell us about your musical background. When you started playing instruments and the trajectory of music you got into. My mom's brothers all played in bands, like in the '60s and '70s, I guess. Mm -hmm. They were all uh, just like local musicians and they sort of moved to, I think they moved to Wisconsin and played in like small regional touring bands. And then they all kind of ended up in Austin when all the, the sort of hippies were living there, moving there, like in the seventies, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad plays guitar uh, like as a hobby. So he played in a, like a high school cover band and they used to play, there's a big military base here. And so they used to play the bars um, near Fort Bliss where all the, the troops were on their way to Vietnam and they would play sort of, you know, sixties and I guess sixties covers, really. They kind of had like uniforms, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Um, but no one ever did it beyond sort of the, that style. So I was kind of surrounded by, uh, guitars and music growing up. And when I was 12, there was a, a class in my school where you had to pick an instrument and I was absent the day that you had to pick. It was like a mandatory music class. And I was absent that day. And when I got back, the only thing left was the electric bass. So I was, I was 12, maybe just turned 12. I was really tiny. I was a really tiny kid. Mm -hmm. um, so it was awkward for me to do it, but I learned kind of like the one, four five of a riff. Um, but I was kind of hooked. And at the same time I had started skateboarding and somebody gave me like a subhumans record and so it began this, this sort of process of like, I started deep diving into punk rock and, and loving punk rock at 12 and playing bass is sort of the perfect storm for thinking you can be in a band because you're learning, songs are pretty easy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can just, as long as you can play as fast as you can and as hard as you can and with some gusto, then you're okay. So that's pretty much where it started for me. And then I switched to um guitar when i was 16 i had met a, an older guy who had a band that was looking for a singer guitar player um and i i sort of lied i mean i did <laughs> lie and said that i could play guitar and sing and 
And then I went and borrowed my cousin Jeremy's Les Paul. So when I showed up to their house, they thought, oh, he's got a Les Paul. So he, <laughs> he must he be good. <laughs> he definitely knows what he's doing. Um, I didn't <laughs> I didn't own a guitar. So I was just playing sort of these bass riffs, but just with a fifth attached to it. So all my first band was these really simple guitar parts. But, you know, I started just kind of making it up as I went along. And, and that was it. So I did that for two years uh, from like, sort of 16-ish to 17-ish around there, mm -hmm. um, and then started at the drive-in when I was 17. And, and then, you know, the rest kind of went, went the way it went. That's pretty courageous to just lie and get a guitar and show up and play and sing when you maybe don't even really know how to. Were you scared at all? I don't think so. I have, I have that, that part of my DNA is missing. So I don't, <laughs> I don't get um, things like that don't scare me. And this is the you know, my dad is a CPA and he always talks about he's very like rigid with things like this and like has a plan and understands a risk versus reward factor or whatever. And he's like, I don't know where you came from because you scare the hell out of me because I would just be like, we're going on tour. You know, like I bought a van. We're going on tour. I made a seven inch. I owe $400. Don't worry. It'll work out. It's going to be cool. Don't worry. It's it, I, and I think it's it really. If you read anything about entrepreneurs, they they talk about sort of the missing DNA that entrepreneurs have. It's the same to be in a band. It's just you're not scared of failure, or or you accept failure and you use it for your advantage. I love that. I think back to when I was 24. I think I tried out for this band. My friend got me in, and I borrowed equipment. But I'm like. I'm like too honest. So I show up and I don't know any of the songs and I tell them that I borrowed the equipment and that I don't have any. And of course I didn't hear back from them. But yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, what the hell was I doing? Like, There's a certain amount of like, uh, I remember when I had one of my first job interviews for teaching and I remember I went in just like, look, I, I'm either going to get this job or I'm not like, I, I might as well just be confident about it. And for some reason, like, I remember during the interview, she was like, so how many years have you been teaching? I'm like, I've never taught. <laughs> I don't know. Like, if you go into certain situations with enough confidence, sometimes it's just enough to confuse people and be like, oh, he seems like he knows what he's doing. All right. Yeah. Well, give him a chance. <laughs> I think now is like, uh, so I, I own, like I said, I have a restaurant. Like, when I do interviews for, like, future employees, if they just say, I just really want to work here. And I'm going to do a good job. Nine out of 10 times, I'll be like, sure. Like, yeah. like yeah. fine. I don't, I don't even care at this point because we go through so many people that just, just tell me what I want to hear and let's just go from there. It's fine. No big deal. Do you ever interview someone and they're like, hey, Jim Ward, I'm a big fan of your music. And then they get the job that way. I, well, they definitely don't get the job because of that. But I can tell <laughs> for sure. I mean, I live in a, in a relatively small town, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And I know, you know, people may know who I am or the bands I've been in. Yeah. But it's always pretty obvious pretty quickly. You know, if you've been I doing see. this long enough, you know when you, you just sort of know. You can spot someone and be like, oh, yeah. all right, I got you. There's like a, like a nervous energy to it. Yeah. Um, which is fine. I mean, both there's people that work for me that are fans and there's people that have no idea what I've ever done. Totally fine. I don't care either way. Yeah. Business is business. So tell us about the beginning of At The Drive-In. How did it all come together? 
Well, I knew that I wanted to tour. That was my main sort of thing. I graduated from high school when I was 17, and the guys in my, in my band, one of them did not want to tour because he was a bit older and mm -hmm. had, you know, like had an apartment and a girlfriend and a, was going to college and obviously couldn't just dump all that and move on. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to start something new. And um, Cedric was kind of like the best front man in town. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you ask him to start a band? Right. So I did. And we just started writing songs. And then we had sort of the, you know, it's kind of every lineup changed for the first like four years. So the first seven inches is slightly different than the second seven inch. Um, which is slightly different to the first record, et cetera. And it wasn't until I think in Casino Out, there was like a really solid lineup for more than one record. Mm -hmm. But we just wanted to, I just wanted to tour. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to get the fuck out of my town and right. go and see some stuff. And I sort of probably had more gusto than I should have, but that's kind of where it was at. I was just very confident how soon was it before you could get out there and and start touring we started the band in the summer of 1994 and the first mm -hmm. seven inch came out in december and we did a small like a four-day texas tour in december of 94 so it was pretty rapid kind of like saved up some money and then my parents let me use uh my grandparents had put some money aside for my college which they let me use for for this sort of adventure. And it wasn't until maybe a few years ago that I found out that my, my parents were allowing me to do all this because they thought I would be turned off by it and then go to college. So I did really well in high school. I was like a, you know, did a smart kid, did all the right stuff, got all the good grades, et cetera, and, and should have gone to like an engineering school somewhere. I went to like summer engineering camps and stuff like that. Oh, that's um, awesome. But what I really wanted to do was uh, just play rock and roll. That's all I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> like all I cared about. <laughs> right. I love when people tell that story and they just do what they want to do right out of high school. I was always so afraid of everything and kind of unsure about my path. So for too long, I did what I thought I should do rather than what I wanted to do. Yeah, I think it's going to leave you feeling a little let down if you do what you maybe think you're supposed to do. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think I discovered the band around In Casino Out. I, you know, I pretty much only listened to hardcore. And then I got into like Texas is the Reason and Saves the Day. And I started to branch out, Get Up Kids, all that stuff. And yeah. at the drive-in, I, I knew their name rang, rung out. So I checked out In Casino Out. And there was this there was this review of the album. I don't remember what magazine it was in, but I'll never forget it. Because this was my exact experience with the album. They compared it to buying this new shirt and you try the shirt on and you don't really like it and it goes back in the drawer. And then two weeks later, you take the shirt out, you wear it and you're like, holy shit, this is the best shirt ever. And then you <laughs> wear that shirt every day for a year. And that was my exact experience with that album. At first, I was kind of didn't get it and I was like, huh. But then all of a sudden it was like, boom, this is incredible. Well, I think there was like two two entry points, right, for our band. One was if you happen to see us live, which was a big a big selling point because it was chaotic and and yeah. it was an experience if nothing else. Um, even if you didn't like the music, you're like that was 
ridiculously weird or whatever. It was a, spec- it was a spectacle. Sure. It was awesome. Yeah, it was a thing. Um, and then I think if you bought an album, then there was this like new level that you would get into where you're like, oh, this maybe now this makes sense musically because I couldn't get all of that at the time because there's just so much fucking going on, which I totally understand and can only happen when you're young and have that much energy and um, yes. and just you live on like we lived on chaos and it was it was great but i think those records were good in that we put a lot of energy into writing and and we're always trying to make good songs it wasn't like let's just make an album to go on tour so that we could go and play and make whatever five dollars a day or something it was never about that but i think there was really an element of um pushing forward also, we were super isolated from the rest of the community. Like we didn't, we didn't necessarily fit in a lot of places. So we would kind of early on made a decision to play anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a good decision. And had maybe we come from a scene where we could have been a little more selective about who and when we played or had like an early fan base that would allow us to play just a specific show. I don't know that things would have turned out the same way because we were sort of just like, never fit in anywhere and still to this day i don't think you can really categorize that band with too many other bands especially of our generation no No. there's other bands after it that i go that sounds like at the drive-in yeah (laughs) after you guys but nobody before that right but there weren't contemporaries that sounded because we would be just as happy on tour with jimmy eat world who we loved Mm -hmm. um as carp who we loved as like we would go on tour with anybody literally anybody um, as long as we could go on tour and that's all we cared about was just going and going and going and going and going. Right. It is really unique. The only thing, and they don't sound totally similar, similar, but I listened to relationship of command again recently and sonically at times, it kind of reminds me of rage against the machine, but those two bands are vastly different. Like I think at the drive-in stands on their own as far as sound and everything goes. Well, I think you could, And, you know, before we made Relationship, we had done a tour with Rage. So Mm -hmm. maybe there was some amount of inspiration from the percussive nature of that band. Yeah. Um, But I can't... I also remember writing Relationship of Command relatively quickly in a space in in L.A. I want to say within, like, two or three weeks where we would go to practice every day and, like, sort of write a song and then the next day write another song it happened really quickly so i don't and i don't remember ever thinking especially in that band never thinking like let's make it sound like this or let's make it sound like this right and i i do think we were very aware of of that comparison could come so i i do think that there was if anything uh, a hesitation if anything went that direction we probably pulled away from it but the explosiveness of it i would understand being comparable for sure yes it was like that and it it, yeah it wasn't even in it was just kind of like in feel somehow i i had also been up all night uh and we were listening to it in the morning so you know that could have been a factor too i would think if you if you looked at a a car explode and a building explode they're both explosions right but they're totally (laughs) different things so maybe that's like the comparison exactly and and also that band was that is to this day the best live band i've ever seen in my life easily so if anything we took from them was just this pure adrenaline that we 
we could take from them on that tour. Yeah, I can still listen to them today and get incredibly, incredibly hyped. Sadly, I haven't seen them, but uh, well, I was thinking of going to the reunion tour and then I put two tickets in the cart and I saw it was like $450 and I was like, "Mm, maybe next time. It's weird that that, I don't know how that happened, but yeah, their tour was supposed to start here in El Paso and I facilitated some of the um, art around town. Oh. And the, and the promoter is a friend of mine, so I was going to go and catch up with that. But unfortunately, uh, the world changed. Yeah, big time. You mentioned like you didn't really fit in with any particular scene. And I, I have this vivid memory of a friend telling me he saw you playing a bowling alley somewhere and you just you didn't look like anybody else. You weren't dressed like anybody else. You didn't sound like anybody else. Was Did any thought go into that or were you just doing what you're doing? No, we're just from El Paso. <laughs> we just don't, we're not like the rest of the world. Um, and that, that goes for every other city probably as well. But we don't have, um, I think we probably looked like people that lived here, but mm-hmm. you didn't see anybody else from here. So it was hard to tell. So we, it's not like we were, I mean, we, our city is unique to itself, but I don't know that we were unique to our city as much as maybe it came off because there wasn't anybody else really. I mean, no one's really come from here since in that genre at all. Really? No. We have Khalid, who's a like an R&B singer. He's the biggest thing from here since us. And before us was Bobby Fuller, who was in the 60s. So. Yeah. I figured a bunch of At The Drive-Ins would have popped up in El Paso after you guys. I just don't think the population is here. Ah. Uh, maybe in Austin? Probably, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I quickly started avoiding that with all... Uh, with every, every ounce of my energy. Austin? No, just bands that sounded or looked like us. Ah, yes, I see. When did you notice things starting to pick up? Did it happen before Relation, or was it just around that time? Well, you know the saying, um, the harder you work, the luckier you get. It's, yes. it's how it felt. So I think we, we, you know, Golden Voice was really kind to us in L.A., and we played This Ain't No Picnic the first year, um, which was probably like 98 and then we did the saint no picnic the second year and played the main stage that was the year with like sonic youth um and the story goes there was like label execs at that festival Mm -hmm. um but in that in that time it was a pretty standard thing if you sold ten thousand records on an indie then young a and r or smaller a and r would start picking up on that at at major labels so uh, in Casino Out sold 10,000 and then, you know, we put out Via and that did relatively well and we were sort of playing bigger and bigger shows. So we started playing at like, you know, 300 people in LA or 400 people in LA. And then at that point, people just start noticing. And when they come to the show, I think we could pull it off live as far as chaos goes. Um, <laughs> oh, and, yes. then, and then they would buy records and then I think that they would be, I think that we could hold our own in a recording as well. So I think it was just one of those things where it was like, a, there was definitely an unknown uh, element to it, but I think there was, it was a good chance. It was, it was a good risk for somebody to take. Right. And you know, with that band at the drive-in, that was one of the first bands from our scene, so to speak, like bands that we were actively interested in that we saw really start to blow up. 
And I'm talking in a big way, like on TV. Yeah. And you were you were on a tour. We I remember you were on some special in USA, and we all gathered at my friend's house to watch it. Oh yeah, yeah. And, the Farm Club. Yeah, and I mean, we met you too that night, and yeah. and Outcast. Oh really? <laughs> how fucking weird is that? How how is that? Like, do, do you talk to them at yeah, all? Yeah, a hundred percent. And they're all yeah. super nice people. And it was like everything that your punk rock side of you is telling you, like we should just set this on fire and fuck everybody. Right. And then you get there and you're like, damn it. Everybody's super nice and really normal people. And this is, this is really fucking with my head because you don't get, it's not what you think it's going to be. You know, you, you think it's going to be one thing and you think you're going to, um, you think you're going to go and just like, you know, as the British say, take a piss. Like, I'll just laugh at all of you and collect the paycheck, which isn't really a paycheck, but you know what I mean? Like you think it's a, a bit of a joke and then you get there and you realize that everybody there is a human being from the person putting the catering in your room to the sound people to the you know the people that pick you up from the airport and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it has a different it feels different because you think oh i can't treat other people like uh the idea that i thought it was going to be they're really nice and now this makes me question everything that i know and not to be too to get too deep on it but this started happening if not daily, weekly, like we would be put in these positions where I started, things were challenging to me. I didn't want to be on a major label. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with any of this stuff. And the more it happened, the more I realized, well, they're just people. And it's not, it's not really that big a deal. And maybe I'm making this into more of a thing than, than it needs to be. And then you meet people like Outkast and you're like, these people are so far out and so creative (laughs) and brilliant. And like, okay, everything I knew, I don't know. Yeah. I think that recognition of humanity, like when you start to realize like that, there's that spark within everybody and you start to like really see it in other people. You're like, oh, okay. You know, you have a a mom and a dad and sisters and brothers. And like, you're just a regular person. Like, you know, if if you're a decent person and you see that, then you understand like you're, like you're saying, you have a mom and a dad and like, you're, you're just a human. You're just going to work and like, yeah, you might be the guitar player in you too, but you're still just a human. And it's actually a pretty nice guy. So <laughs> all of a sudden you start thinking, well, maybe I don't have this all figured out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And you know, Jim, in doing this podcast, like all the artists that I talk to, these are the artists that I worshiped and worship still. I mean, at the drive-in Sparta, all the bands we talked to, the, I assumed, oh, these guys all have it made. These guys all have the connections. These guys are big time. These guys are all doing it. But the thing I learned is that, like you mentioned, everyone is just people. They have struggles. Oh, yeah. They, they have disappointments. Uh, they couldn't get things together. You know, they, they did the same things I did. And right. they just and, went in different directions. And continue to. And that's the important yes. thing is like, the, the challenges that I've seen in life maybe have not been as great as they are for me today. Mm-hmm. So the things that have been uh, things I thought I had to overcome, like today I would say I'm, a, I'm at more of a crossroads and more insecure and more like all that stuff continues to go with life. Yes. And it doesn't, nobody has it together. And like we all have, you know, friends that are more famous or, or more successful or whatever than us. And then when you have those conversations, it's like the same thing. Like I have friends that sell 
insane amounts of records that are Mm -hmm. super famous that when we talk about insecurities, I'm like, fuck, you got problems. Like (laughs) you definitely have some issues. You know what I mean? Like it's, everybody has it. And it's, it's such a cool thing now to see sort of some of that, um, the curtain being pulled down and some of that shit being taken away where you can actually talk about mental health and talk about the issues that affect you without sacrificing you as an artist. Like before you weren't allowed to say that you weren't allowed to say I'm depressed. You're not allowed to say, I don't want to be here. You're not allowed to say, I want to go home. You're like, no, you take every opportunity because you're so lucky to be here. Anybody would give anything to be here. And so you kind of pile it on and pile it on and pile it on. And then you fucking crack. Like you're going to, of course you're going to. And then it goes to the next generation below you. Cause now you're cracked. Yeah. I, I just am so excited to see people like Haley Williams talking about depression. It's yeah. so important. Yeah. Or people are really open about addiction. I mean, sadly you're seeing a lot of the younger rap stars just dropping like flies and it's really sad. Yeah. Uh, or you see someone like Demi Lovato coming out about addiction and that that's a theme we come back to on the show a lot is that there there is help out there for whatever oh, yeah. you're going through but to to find the right help and to stick with it it's just such a struggle and in in my life I I had struggles with drugs and alcohol really bad for years and years so it's something I circle back to a lot and I just remind people there's help out there and that you know if people have similar struggles to what I had you know I tell them yeah email me I can tell you what worked for me so we we want to be uh we want to be a voice for people and people yeah. have written me and t- told me like hey this show has helped me out and god that that's the best thing if if we can help people in any way that's that's just great yeah. I always think if you could help one person and I and I have friends that are in pretty massive bands that are now recovered and mm-hmm. and they'll say like if I meet someone backstage and they say I need help like they drop everything and they immediately go into like uh, recovery mode. And yes. it's pretty, pretty awesome to see. Cause I think, you know, I lost my cousin to heroin and yes. it's, it's a brutal, uh, you know, when I sat with his parents afterwards, I don't think I'll ever forget that feeling of just thinking like racking my brain for what I could have done, you know? Right. Um, and I couldn't have, and that's, that's the honest answer is I couldn't have done anything probably, but you never stop thinking that. And so, yeah, if anyone ever, ever talks to me about that stuff, I'm, I'm there. Like I will, the bus will wait. Yes. Same here. And I also lost a cousin to heroin and I know there's nothing anyone can do for the person. Cause I was that person. I wasn't going to listen to anybody until I was ready to stop. And with my cousin specifically, it, he, I also lost him to heroin, and this is how this is how the mind of an addict works. I heard that he went into treatment, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm not about that, so I'm just going to stop talking to him, so that I don't mess him up. I'm still getting high, like I'm right. still gonna get high, and that's that's how the mind of an addict works. And I, oh God, I so wish that he could be around and that you know we could be involved in this thing together. And but. Yeah. He didn't make it. Sadly, so many people don't make it. Yeah. Well, we have to do our best, and that's all you can do. I always tell my students at school, I, st- I start with this. Like, this actually, this whole week has been anti-bullying week at school. And I always tell the kids, like, you know, there's this old Plato quote that says, be kind, because for everyone fights a battle that you not you do not know of. And it's wow. like, 
people are able to put up that mask or put on a good show and then their life is in shambles or they they go home to something that you have no idea about um and it's it's really devastating because you know you see kids uh especially now like with with virtual learning kids that should normally be getting mental health services three times a week and they're only getting it you know through a computer and it's like yeah that's not the same thing we we are really going to face when kids get back into school full time here um because we are still virtual um at least until january and it's like you know there we're going to see a huge influx of kids that not only need more counseling than they needed previously because we need to catch up on what we missed but kids that normally wouldn't have needed counseling services or needed social services interventions they're going to need it now and it's it's really it's it's kind of it's devastating to think of because it's like wow that's horrible that you know i get mad at kids i'm like how could you not turn in that quiz today it's like you don't know what's going on at their house like right, you don't right. know you don't know uh you know I had one kid send me an email last week and it was like, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be in school for the next couple of days. And I was like, why? Like, and I literally was like reading the email, like mad, like looking at it being like, why? What, what, what's the dip? Sit in front of the computer. Come on. <laughs> and as I'm reading it, he was like, my mom's been having trouble with money. The lights are cut off. Oh, so oh. we don't have, when the, we don't have the power, uh, we can't use Wi-Fi." And I'm like, my heart just sank. And I'm yeah. like, Okay, well, I'm emailing the social worker. She's going to get out to you. Like, we're going to get something fixed. We're going to get this working. Like, this is something that we can take care of as a school. We are a public school. Like, we can take care of this. Like, we can put, we have things in place to make sure that you can get to school. Um, Even with, like, the circumstances now. But, like, you know, that that's such a huge thing to tell people is, like, you know, make sure you're nice to everybody because you don't know what the fuck they're going through. You have no fucking clue. Yeah. Well, and, good and on to, you for tackling that like head <laughs> on, you know? Yeah. yeah, at least there's options. So, uh, Jim, you mentioned some of the difficulties of being on a major label and how you didn't really want to do it. What What were some of the difficulties? What did you have to overcome? Um, I think that the, the beginning was the perception that I had of what it would be, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just felt like it was... I don't know if it just didn't feel cool or if you felt like you were selling out and you have to remember this is like 1999. It's a totally different time Yes, where, where bands are getting really shunned jawbreaker specifically, like just getting pummeled for going to a major. That's who I was just going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then within a couple of years, it just didn't matter. Right. And I think by the time, so we signed to what ended up being grand Royal which was a cool label to sign to. So we kind of lucked out on that. Mm-hmm. But from that to like, uh, we signed to Sparta signed to DreamWorks in 2001. And by that point, like nobody cared. So we were like in the last sort of two years of that kind of weird shit, which kind of lasted like the late nineties, basically like 94 to 2000 where bands were signing major. And then you get a backlash from the scene and then I think by 2000, that scene had sort of grown up and there was no longer anybody who cared. And it was just like new kids who were like, I don't care if you're on a major. But I don't know if there was, I mean, there's no, the only challenge was in my mind. And it was me dealing with me 
There was no, like nobody pressured me to do anything. Once we got there again, you start realizing like all the people that worked at that label were super cool and I had a super good time with them. And there was like some really great perks to being on, on a major, like you got to record for multiple weeks at a time and there was marketing money and all the stuff that you didn't really realize would kind of change your life forever was happening. And I think the, yeah, so the biggest challenge was just me dealing with me, if that makes sense, uh, which was legitimate for sure. And, and I wish, my only wish is that maybe I had someone around me who could have helped me process that a little bit, but there wasn't. So it was just trying to figure it out and not self-destruct in the process, which we kind of ended up doing. But isn't, isn't that funny though, that you find yourself in those positions where you're like, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm the enemy here. <laughs> like where you yeah. recognize that it's, it's you versus you the entire time. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of scary because like you were mentioning before, like your entire perception of what you thought the world was or how you perceive the world or how you looked at things is now suddenly turned completely around. Yeah. It's a very, very scary prospect to look at, especially as a, you know, depending on what you age you are. Uh, I remember thinking like, you know, uh, growing up, like I was like, my mom is kind of irresponsible, man. Like there was times where we didn't have dinner on the table at the Like, you know, she was always just like, here, just microwave a hot dog, blah, 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 blah. And I remember being like, well, you know what? She did raise all of us in, without my dad. And then now here's me with three kids. My wife and I are both teachers and, <laughs> and there's times where it's like, what's for dinner? It's like, ah, what's in the fridge? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> let's Microwave see what we, a hot dog, man. Let's, yeah, let's get, let's see what we can scrape together. We're going to have some macaroni and cheese and we'll have some hot dogs. Skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still skateboard at all? So I had knee surgery um, oh, no. at, at the end of 2018. So just finished like the, the sort of like return, the Sparta return to tour in 2018. And we finished like November 22nd or something like that. Yeah. And I want to say like two weeks later, uh, I was at a jujitsu class and, and tore uh, a ligament in my knee and then got surgery a couple of weeks later and then was like on crutches for two months or a month and then rehab. Um, and I've been a little bit, timid about getting back on but i sort of look at look at it every now and then like (laughs) once a week i look at it in my closet and i'm like are we going to the skate park today no we're not going to the skate park today i'm just really scared to be honest like getting hurt at this age it was a whole it was like a whole different thing and it was it really freaked me out like i've never had surgery i've never been under anesthetic before oh yeah and it was if i'll be honest kind of fucked me up when at the drive-in signed to a major, I didn't care at all. Like, I think that time was over. I heard it was going to be on a major. You yep. guys were playing really big shows. I didn't care. I was like, that's cool. So we, we I, and I, I actually think like the, the, the big show is a myth about that band. Because we, we opened for Rage. Mm-hmm. That was it. Like, that was the only, other than that, we were still playing the same basically the same clubs we played before, but they were sold out. So oh. we, we were coming back from Europe to play like 2000 seaters or 1500 seaters, like to go up to the bigger rooms. Um, yeah. and we stopped. So we actually never got to big shows. Now, 
uh, correct my memory here if I'm wrong. You were on a tour with, I think, Blue Tip. This was in 2000 or 2001. Probably 2000. Yeah, and I was supposed to go see that. And I think you dropped off a date to play. Was it that a raid show at Giant Stadium? No, no, no. We never played that. Yeah, I, I remember hearing you guys dropped off something to, to like to play. You were going to play Giant Stadium. Maybe it was just a rumor. I was like, what? What no, is going on? So there was a there was a tour that was booked that was Beastie Boys, Rage, Us. That was going to be all stadiums. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mike D broke his collarbone is the, oh. is the story I think I heard. Either way, it didn't happen. It was supposed to be in, I think, 2001. But no, we never we never played any of that stuff we played arenas with rage that was all we did played a couple of shows with the foo fighters but in pretty small venues uh-huh. like radio radio show stuff so you were still playing the same kind of shows basically just now yeah. they're sold out yeah and then we got to europe and it was uh a little bit crazier and we had a bus for the first time and that was crazy um because it it just sort of again fucks with your punk rock uh, what you're supposed to be in your mind yeah um, but all in all, I mean, then you look back and I think I've spent years and years and years on buses. It doesn't matter at all. Right. It has nothing to do with the music at all. It's just, you get to travel at night instead of during the day. That's so were you it. on tour pretty much nonstop leading up to, and after the release of uh, relationship of command? So I was basically on tour from, we sort of started going full time. I want to say like in 97, um and then so at that point i was 21 Mm -hmm. and then i stopped touring when i was 33 like for a good chunk of time so really for a long time it was all make a record go on tour even when at the drive-in stopped and sparta started there was about so we we stopped in february i want to say of 2001 and sparta was on the road in october of that year wow (laughs) <laughs> so you didn't waste any time no straight into it basically like i went and started playing with some guys in austin and then sort of got called back to play with um the dudes that eventually would be sparta and it happened really quickly yeah so the end of at the drive-in i mean there's a lot of rumors and legends over the years lay set it straight for us jim what how did it end um i got married on mm-hmm. March 17th, and the next day, Cedric quit the band on March 18th. Mm. So that would be that. <laughs> like, it's not a lot. I don't know why there's so many weird rumors and stories about it, but I mean, I think the label said we were on hiatus mm-hmm. for some reason, but I mean, he definitely was like, I'm leaving the band. And I was like, all right. <laughs> like, we were, we were super burned out. I was, yeah. I, I don't think that I understood that it was a way of making money yet. So mm-hmm. we hadn't really made any money. I wasn't like, none of that mattered to me. And then that would sort of set a precedent for my life um, in the sense that I, I then from that point on never really cared about that. I never cared about, that was never a good way to get me to do anything. So if right. anyone would say, we got to do this tour because that's going to get you to the next level of fame, I'd be like, I don't give a fuck. Like, (laughs) I really don't. And you can call me on it and you can look at my career. You can look at all the tours we've done and not done and whatever. And I will stand by that statement. Like, that shit doesn't mean anything to me. I have made, uh, honestly, like, I've been the most depressed and 
self-destructive when I was making the most money. It just doesn't, <laughs> none of that is, it doesn't mean anything to me. And it took me a really long time to realize that it was actually, the more I worried about it, the more I was hurting myself and the people around me. Like you get, at, at least for me, I get more self-destructive in those situations. When I was younger, I mean, sort of before I knew what I was doing, but at the time, um, I would just sort of self-medicate to get through that shit. And it was miserable. It was fucking miserable. And I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it again for any amount of money. Like, so if, if anyone ever wonders why I don't do something, that's not part of the equation. So if money was not the motivator. <laughs> no, one way or the other, like I, I could make money. I could not make money, whatever. I don't, just doesn't matter to me. I don't live an extravagant lifestyle. So, so you talk about self-medicating to deal with stuff. That's definitely my deal. And yeah. that was my deal for a really long time. And I had to do and still do an incredible amount of work to manage that. How, how did you come back from it? Um, so mine was always booze, right? It was always alcohol. I just not a big drug guy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm super lucky that I met somebody when I was 20 that, mm -hmm. that has been part of my life ever since. And she's now my wife. Um, but somebody who doesn't care about any of this stuff to the point where she wouldn't allow me in the long term to upset our life in order to get famous or any of those things. Like none of that shit is important to her. She doesn't care. She's not a big fan of my music. Right. So it's not somebody who's after, you know, like sometimes you'll, you'll meet people that their partner is like sees an opportunity in that relationship or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not my relationship. So I have somebody who's like, um, you're acting like an asshole. You're <laughs> out of control. You're being a fucking jerk. Nobody wants to be around you. It's like somebody who's just honest with me about what I'm doing. So that to me has always been the best thing. Like that's who got me to not smoke cigarettes. That's who's got me to like not be an alcoholic. That's somebody who has kept me from self-medicating to the point of total destruction, even though I've tried and I've pushed <laughs> her as far as I can. Yeah. Um, she's sort of been there for me the whole time, which is I'm super lucky to have somebody like that. And, and I hope now I'm sort of at a place where I can be that for somebody else, but I definitely wasn't, I needed somebody in my life, uh, to help me for sure. Um, and since then, like I've, I've gotten I definitely am an, an, an advocate and an ally for people that need help and will do my best, like whether they work for me or a friend or whatever, like we, we bend over backwards to get people into therapy or rehab or whatever, just because I know how much of a difference it can make in your life when you're a little bit more together. And I just, I've never wanted to be, um, I've never wanted to get to a point where I had to be sober. So mm -hmm. anytime, like I've taken a year off from drinking totally where it was just like, and that was the, what triggered that was playing a show, a solo show, um, where I basically woke up in my house the next day and don't remember any of it or anything <laughs> or how I got home or anything. And then called yeah. my, called my front of house guy and was like, did I like, what happened last night? And he was like, you're great. Super good. Like played a great show. You went home totally normal. And I was like, this is not fucking normal. Yeah. Like, this is not healthy at all. One, that no one knew I was at, I was totally blackout drunk, right? So, yeah. just decided, like, this is a good time. But again, this is an industry where I was essentially paid early on 
in alcohol and then <laughs> and then totally numbed to whatever was happening with alcohol and that's like constantly like um you play a show there's everything you could ever want to drink backstage and you go to a party and it's everything it's just always around you and there's definitely nobody that's like okay i'm making money off you but also i feel like you may need to slow down like that's so fucking rare so i've made it a point to be that person as much as i can be so like if i have a good friend even if they're doing well like i'll pull them aside and say like you are like i'll be honest with you this is how you're acting this is how you're making me feel i'm scared for you or mm -hmm. this is something that i've been through and i think i could give you some insight and you know rarely are people ready to listen but i think when they are they keep that in the back of their mind and you'll be the phone call that they'll make right yeah, yeah. Was there ever a point where people would openly offer you drugs, like for free? That was my dream. I was like, I want to make it to the point where people are offering me drugs. Because I always have to go find them, and it's a fucking pain in the ass. So being in a band, if you want to do drugs, is a great vehicle for uh, scoring. I'm not, I've never been a drug person. Like, I'm allergic, right. to, I'm allergic to weed, mm -hmm. which has kept me from everything. And not that I haven't had some some dabbles in other stuff, but... It's just never been my thing. Also, right. it's fucking expensive to do drugs. Oh, yeah. Holy and it shit. is it is really hard. Like when I'm at a bar and my favorite drug is in front of me, like I'm good. I don't need any more <laughs> than that. Like I've never been into, you know, the whole like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm yeah. I'm only interested in rock and roll. Never been interested <laughs> in the other stuff. Like don't care about girls, don't care about drugs. Like I just want to play shows and have fun. And unfortunately, like, you know, booze is part of that. And you got to be aware because I just don't want to end up like you have to be aware enough to know where you could be going and then yeah. look at that oh. person and say, like, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to be that guy. Right. Like, right. Yes. That guy. Nobody. So we we just always say sloppy, like, don't get sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> so if you get I sloppy, like then we don't want to. We don't want to be part of that. That sounds remarkably similar to me drinking. That was my drinking experience, almost like, you know, minus the whole part where you're famous. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it got too much, too quick. And it was just like, there was a couple times where I just woke up and I was like, I don't really remember what happened the day before. So I'm just going to, you know, take a, a I'm going to take a beat for a second and just take yeah. a break for a little while. Um, and I, I, Keith and I have talked about this before. Like I'm by no means sober. Like I don't, I, I, like if I go someplace, like I've had drinks in the past, geez, in the past three months I've had a drink, but, um, I, in my head, I'm like, I know that I can go overboard with it really quickly yeah. or that when I do it, I have to be very measured about it. Like I used to do things like, you know, not eat on purpose. So when I drank, I would get drunk really fast. Like, sure. it was just, yeah. just a horrific <laughs> idea but like in your like you know my cheapo brain i'm like dude i'm gonna get drunk off like six beers because i'm gonna pound them and i'm gonna have nothing in my stomach it's gonna be amazing like yeah, <laughs> yeah if i if i ate it would kill my high so oh, i'd make no. sure i eat first and then i would get high yeah yeah so that was my system well let's talk about sparta now yes. sparta started up very quickly after at the drive-in was done it sounds like yep. right did you have stuff written already that you were working on or did it start after at the drive-in so i did have um 
So like air was probably written for at the drive-in and, mm -hmm. and just never made. So I know like I, I, I went and played with the guys that were in a band called rhythm of black lines in Austin mm -hmm. and, and had the idea that we would form a band and, and have a recording somewhere of that version of air. And then it went to, and then we came here, we wrote a record really fast. Um, got signed really fast, made a record really fast, and then went on tour for like 18 months or something like that. It was Jeez. super wow. long. The first Sparta tour was hellaciously long. Whoa. Um, but I think it was, we had a, a giant chip on our shoulder and we're trying to prove that we weren't the other guys that nobody cared about, you know? Yeah. Right. Which is what, what came with that job. So. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly not. That I mean, Sparta is just an incredible band wiretap scars is an album i go back to still and there was a period in 2012 where i got real into it again and i think i listened to the song collapse like 400 times oh and people God. were like this song again what's wrong with you and i'm like dude listen to this shit but how fucking perfect is that song so my experience this is kind of like my experience with wiretap scars was i worked at and this came up in one of the last broadcasts but i worked at the radio station in college and i got a, an advanced copy and i remember i brought it home and uh all the kids i live with um were all lacrosse players so like Think about like the like kind of like not meathead, but no, some of them were meathead kind of kids. Like, <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah. yeah, jockey kind of kids with long hair. Like, you know, everybody's like, yo, bro, what's that kind of guys? Super fun, super nice people, really great teammates, but definitely not into the music I was into. And I remember I brought that record home and I was like, I put it on. And my one roommate came out of his room and he was like, what is this? I was like, oh, it's this band Sparta. It's like, uh, part of that band at the drive never mind you don't know it but it it's a it's a band that i just picked up the record he's like this is really good it became like the so like we would have literally keg parties at our house with like you know a couple hundred people in there and people would be like what music is this and we'd be playing sparta it was really fun because we exposed so many different people to that type of music and they were like this is pretty good this is awesome this is really good like i've never heard this before i'm like yeah well, I think I think that we honestly missed the mark on the single. So we we released uh, "Cut Your Ribbon" as a single, and I think what they were trying to do is piggyback on the reputation of of our old band. Yeah, right. And I always thought it should have been air. Yes. And I and I would make, you know, again, you would have these arguments or conversations, but ultimately somebody would just take me to the corner bar, and I would forget about it. And that was, that's how, <laughs> that's how it would get dealt with. Right. Is like, Oh, we'll just go have a drink. And I'm like, Oh, right, well, fucking who cares? Who cares yeah. about this? I don't care about the single. What does it matter? But I, I do think that there was, we missed an opportunity to, um, to maybe get a bigger, like this, the album was deeper than the single yes. showed, I think is what yeah. I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Cause cut your ribbon is like a harder song. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, the hardest song that Sparta ever recorded. Easily, yeah, easily. It's like a more pissed off quicksand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's and, a huge compliment. I'll take it. But <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that wouldn't be the first song I would show someone because they might get scared away. People who aren't into all the music we're into are, are fragile. You know, you don't want to scare them. Yeah. yeah, I think I think Air probably would have been better, and Collapse should have been the second single. I don't yes. even know if there was a second single, but yeah, I still. I mean, I still play that song often, um, just by myself like at solo shows and and it's funny because jerry finn who made the first sparta record said on the demo i, I played Rhodes 
the the sort of hook on the on the bridge is a Rhodes with a big muff on it, that mm-hmm. little melody. And he said, I've been trying to figure out how to get Rhodes on a heavy record for years, and you figured it out, so I want to do your record. And that was like one of his motivations for doing the record was that particular thing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that I mean, it's a perfect song. One of my favorite of all time, so thanks for writing it. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I love it. And uh, I, I did a solo acoustic show, which went horribly because I was just <laughs> unprepared, and it was my my first ever but I did a cover of Red Alibi poorly. Oh, wow. But, you know, I did it. Yeah, well, got to do it. Exactly. So I'm glad I did, because then eventually I started another band where I finally fronted it, and, you know, I'm really happy with the way it came out. And did you have any fear or hesitation in branching off and fronting this new band? Always. Always, yeah. yeah. I mean, part of the part of the excitement to it is is those nerves. So like I remember sort of every everything that goes to the next level gives you that whole new set of nerves. Like the first time you play a theater, the first time you play an arena, the first time you headline a theater, the first time you like play the big slot on the festival. Um, and then when we started Sparta, like I was not a singer. I sang in a band in high school to 40 or 50 people, right? And then all of a sudden I'm signed to DreamWorks as a front man for a band and it was daunting for sure and the one thing that i asked jerry when we started the record because this is like the beginning of auto-tune mm-hmm. i said i don't want to use any computer auto-tuning anything and he said i'm fine with that but you still have to have the same results so we're going to work like i'm going to basically i'm going to work you to the bone and we, yeah. we spent weeks doing vocals for that record where it was um if I had any inkling of ever giving up, then that's would have been when I gave up because like he was fucking brutal to me. And it was, it was as fast as like, I would sing a line and the, the talk back mic would come on and he'd be like, flat, do it again, flat, do it again, flat, do wow. it again, flat. Like it was fucking brutal. And I yeah. sang my ass off on that record, but I learned it was like a crash course. So we, we didn't even finish the record in Vancouver. We went to Vancouver to make the record. I had to go to LA afterwards and spend two or three more weeks with him at a studio there, like because I wasn't done with vocals because it was taking so long um, because I wouldn't use like the tricks. Right. Yeah, it's so hard. When I did it for the first time, I was completely unprepared, and I w- I left there feeling I left the studio feeling like a completely beaten down and broken man. I it's, was like, it's oh, super man. hard. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it does weigh on you. And um, also the physical limitations of the way I sing don't limit themselves to long days. So right. um, three hours for me singing is like incredibly physically challenging. Um, yeah. And I wish, <laughs> I remember sitting with um, a few other singers at a festival in Germany. It was like Davey from AFI um, and the singer from Hot Hot Heat. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting there and we were like, wouldn't it be great if you could go back and not sing this high? Like start <laughs> start your whole career singing in a lower register because this shit's hard. Like it's physically demanding to do this. And um, we were all sitting there just laughing about how we had created this trap for ourselves. <laughs> I can't imagine like that's like uh, one of those things like so the first band uh i was ever in was uh this band called audience of one and it actually the singer was uh anthony green from circus survive yeah and, and every time i hear him sing i'm always like 
how does he do this for a prolonged period of time? Because their shows are notoriously long. Like they'll play yeah. for an hour and a half. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah. and he keeps it up the whole time. I'm always blown away by that. He's just like a superhuman. I think. Have you seen any of the, like the Foo Fighters three plus hours of shows? No, it's no. insane. I don't know how he does that. Like that guy sings for over three hours in that crazy fucking growl scream. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. It just hurts it me. Yeah. Like I've, I've been to a couple of them where they hit the, like the three hour mark. I'm just physically in pain for him. So since Tommy mentioned uh, Anthony Green, I, I thought of Anthony when you said Cedric was the best front man in town. Yeah. So, of course, you're going to ask him. That was Anthony in our town. So, And everyone wanted to be in a band with Anthony. He had like a buzz around him even when we were 16, 17 years old. Yeah. Did Cedric have that going on too? He did, yeah. He was in a band called uh, Phantasmagoria, or, like around town. Um, and mm-hmm. he was just, we went to the same high school. We live in the same basic neighborhood. Um, it's a small town, like I said. So it was kind of like he had been touring. He had done a couple of tours with this band Foss, mm-hmm. um, which people will now know because Beto was in that band. And now Beto is a sort of a national oh, yeah. political guy. But so those guys were like a little bit older than me and they had actually gone out and toured. And I was so... I looked up to them so much because they had gone and done it. They had gone on tour. They had left the city. They had gone and played shows. Like it didn't matter if anyone played anybody. It was just that you left town and did something. Um, mm-hmm. So when he came back in 94, the summer of 94 from that tour, and I want to say maybe his band had broken up when they got home and Foss had stopped or something. Either way, there was like a, I just ran into him and I was like, hey, I'm going to start a new band do you want to, it was that simple back then. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm going to start a new band. You want to do it? Sure. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and there's not, I like, mean, we, we weren't, you know, this isn't a, a scene motivated by fame or fortune. So it's not like, right. It's not like anybody thought you could be from El Paso and make a living playing music at all. So right. never even entered our minds. And again, probably set me on somewhat of a trajectory for where I am now, which is, that stuff has just never been too important. So uh, about early Sparta, th- this might be a weird question, but I have to ask, is there any Christopher Cross influence? Like I listen to Sailing and then I listen to Collapse and <laughs> they're very similar. So I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. And, ah, I, I, okay. and I think if you hear any of that, like Billy Joel's my probably my favorite writer of all time. Yeah. Um, but if you hear that, that's probably what you're getting is, is the Billy Joel, especially the Stranger Piano Man. Those two albums, I think, are the two. If you cut and pasted that album, it would be fucking up there with the greats. I love those two records so much. Yeah, I do like Billy Joel. I, I'm mostly just familiar with the hits, but goddamn, they're good. Dude, I found a, a Billy Joel song, I guess, over the summertime. I was just like kicking around on YouTube and... It's called Summer Highland Falls. Yep. Yes. That one Fuck is so is that good. song good. And it's really cool. Somebody, the first comment at the top, somebody said, play this at point seven, like the point seven five speed. Wow. It is a really <laughs> fast song. First of all, that piano riff is very difficult and yeah. very quick. But when you play it at a slower speed, it really kind of it has this very cool dynamic to it as well. So yeah, he's, he's insane. Like, uh, I love his storytelling. Yes. Something I've always aspired to be a better um, 
you know, I talk about songwriting as a journey and I don't think I'll ever get there, but I do like to think like, I just, I'm finishing a record right now. And I think there's a song on this record that I sent my dad, um, which I rarely send anything to anybody, but I sent this song to my dad and said, I think this is the best song I've ever written. And I want, I just want to share it with you. And he wrote me back like a really emotional message saying like, yeah, when I got to the chorus, like my eyes filled with tears because wow. I'm learning how to be able to say some of these things now um, a little bit more poignantly or less like I'm feeling a little more comfortable in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's all about uh, where I'm trying to get to, right? I'm trying to make the best song that I can make. And that's the o- that's literally the only thing that matters to me. So as long as I'll always say, like, I'll go on tour so that I can make another record. Because all I really want to do is just make another record. But there needs to be that life experience in between them so that I have time to, to learn new things. Absolutely. I love that story. I, my favorite, uh, I put out an EP like a couple years ago and my favorite song on it, I made a video for, and I sent it to my dad and, uh, I did not have the same experience as you. My dad was like, (laughs) he was like, uh, yeah, I liked the video. I didn't like the song though. I was like, (laughs) well, well, granted this is, I've written hundreds of songs and this is literally the first one I've ever sent my dad. So that is good, but one one of my older bands, he really liked that one song. Like he he still plays it to this day. So awesome. I mean, you win you win some and you lose some. That's true, folks. We're also going to listen to "Trust the River," the latest Sparta album, which came out this year in April. And I like it. It almost has like a classic rock feel. It's very chill. I really like what uh, what's going on with the band these days. I, I needed it to be that record, and that, yeah, and I got um, I've gotten some really great feedback from people and i've had some uh some real testy emails sent my way from fans that are like this is not um this is not sparta (laughs) right (laughs) wait you're telling me fans email you directly to criticize or like like on uh instagram or whatever Uh, like basically get i get feedback from people because i don't read reviews so i don't know i don't know what people are saying and like I get a list from my publicist of reviews and I don't read it because I think if you celebrate the good ones, you have to, you have to take the bad ones. I wouldn't read them either because I'm just too sensitive. I can't handle any criticism and you know, it would all stick in my mind and I might change up what I'm doing and I, I don't want to do that. It's, I'm, there's no, nobody is going to say anything harsher to me than I will say uh, to, to myself yeah mm-hmm. um but also i don't need to fucking hear it from you because really <laughs> show me a better song which is always my thing like you you can sit and write this about what i do um but i would be shocked if you were doing anything remotely as good yeah yeah and that's and that's me and like of course there's like an ego and a swagger to that but also like fuck you man i don't I don't care. Like, what makes you think I care about your opinion about something I did? One, I already did it. It's done. I've put it out. I've already moved on. Your opinion doesn't matter to me either way. This is for people to take into their life and enjoy or not enjoy on their own. And, And when I put out something, I release it to the world and it's for you. It's not for me anymore. Like, you put it in your own context. You put it in what makes sense to you. You associate it with your life memories those aren't mm-hmm. mine. I don't have any ownership of it anymore. So 
I get a little irritated sometimes with people, obviously. <laughs> yeah, understandably. But I love that you said that because I, I create imaginary fights in my mind and then like decide what I'm going to respond. I'm going to wait for someone to say something negative about the podcast, which actually hasn't happened yet. And that's my same response. Like, oh, well, you start one and have a better discussion. Yeah, where's I mean, your podcast? I don't care what you have to say about it. And that's that's ultimately the end of the story. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And then why are you mad at me? Yeah. <laughs> You're just what? doing your thing. Yeah. I, it doesn't it doesn't bother me, honestly. But So I got to ask you before we conclude. Mm -hmm. Now, at the drive-in reunited for a set of shows something like five or four years ago or something like that. Now, I had never seen at the drive-in. So I was on the fence. I was like, hmm, maybe I'll go check this out. And shortly before the tour began, I saw that you dropped out. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not going because like you're one of the main reasons I would want to go see that band at all. So I have to ask, what happened? Um, so I've addressed it in a few interviews and I haven't really talked a ton about it. Um, the long and the short of it is I got removed. So, oh. and part of that is I tried really hard to fit what was happening and I just mm -hmm. don't think I could physically or emotionally do what other people were doing. And I, I don't, see. and I don't mean to slag anybody. Um, like obviously things like this are complicated and I pick my words because I've never, ever in my life, even at the end of at the drive in the first time, um, when other people would talk shit in the press, I would never talk shit. And I've made a real point of making a career out of not being that person. Right. So now I have to be really careful and think about what I say because of course it's hurtful and of course it was harmful to me in my life. And I love that band very much. I started that band when I was 17. That doesn't mean that you'll always be in control of it. And right. honestly, the, the only person that, um, you know, Cedric has been at every at the drive-in show. And if ultimately, for whatever reason, he didn't feel like he wanted me there, then I would accept that because I believe that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? So I will take all for one, one for all until the day that I'm not there. And But of course it hurts. And it's um, it was traumatic for me, honestly. Like I still imagined that things could be great and things could be fixed and maybe I should have learned a lesson on the 2012 tour and, um, but it's kind of like the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Like, yeah, that's me. So I take right. full responsibility for it. I don't, I don't think that, um, I wasn't shocked by it. I definitely like, you know, when you're the one person in the room, that's not on the same page as everybody else. Yeah. Right. Um, I, and you know, it's fair, like it is what it is. So, so how does it work when you're when you're like gearing up to do that? Do you get like marching orders from someone? Is it like, here's how we're going to do things and this is what we're going to do. And if we don't, then you're not part of it. Is it like that type of situation? It's never that honest. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's all like being in. Um, and I don't elevate myself above any of this. Like I'm 100 percent like in that situation. I was as much a middle school kid as anybody else. Like. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if somebody was talking shit about somebody, I would definitely jump in and like make yeah. fun. like it's it's a band. It's like if you've been in a band and you guys have, then, you know, like there's shit talking and there's like people are mad and then you get over it and then there's alliances and then it's like, you know, but there were some things that ultimately obviously um, made other people upset in the way that I, I in the way that I treat this stuff. So. Yeah. And, and whatever, like, I'll leave it to, honestly, I'll leave it to history. Like, put all the records um, on the shelf and tell me the ones that you like or you don't like, and that's your opinion. And I don't, what the fuck do I care? Like, I'm doing something else. But Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it was sad. I, I just really wish the whole band could have been out there together, but shit, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I wish that, um, I mean, I don't wish, actually. I was going to say I wish I could be a person that would fit into that gang, but I'm actually quite happy not fitting into that, and I'm okay with it. Yeah, so. and I, I hear you, because if, I don't know, if there's a situation where there's a lot of bullshit or stuff I don't agree with, like, I just remove myself from it. I'm like, no, like, I don't, know. this is, this is what I do. Like, we're going to be real with each other. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk to each other. We're not going to do all this weird shit. Like we're going to be normal people, or we're not going to do it at all. That's kind of my philosophy. And and I wouldn't um, look. We've had a long, crazy, crazy fucking life, and I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't hold anybody to anything they've said for the rest of their lives. And I wouldn't um, ask anyone to be mad at anybody else. Like I've had several people over the years since that happened come up and be mad at me. Like, <laughs> why the fuck would you quit? Like, you ruined my whatever. And I'm like. You don't even know the story, but I don't think there's right. any, there's no reason to be mad at anybody about this. Like, honest, right. honestly, man, it's just a band. Like, yeah. it's really just a fucking band and it's not that big a deal. So if you're getting this upset about it, um, you know, you got to leave me out of it. So do you ever watch like footage from that tour and see the other guitar player and be like, wrong? No, he's doing that wrong. <laughs> no, like, I, would never, anything? I have not watched any of it at all. I wouldn't either. There was... I quit one band that went on for a little bit and I never, ever, ever looked at a single thing they did again. I do. I like to do the ice out. Like once you're out, you're out and that's it. Yeah. It's, I mean, with, I think with us, it's, it's pretty complicated cause it's a lot of, I mean, it's been a long time and a lot of shit has happened over the years and there's a lot of different bands that are now interweaved. And, um, it's sort of, I think one of those things that when you're outside of it, mm -hmm. you, you realize maybe how immature you are acting that happened mm -hmm. for me. Like as soon as I was out and I could sort of look at it maybe a little bit more objectively, I was like, Oh, that's definitely not the person I want to be. Like, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to treat people this way. I don't want to be around this. Like, yeah, I'm good. It's hard for people to understand that because you just, a lot of people just see either the ticket sales or the money or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, that's not as important. I, I guess I sort of maybe see it more from I didn't like who I was in that situation. And that's not on anybody else. That's on me. So, again, I wouldn't – I have no shit to talk about anybody. Um, you got to do what you got to do. And if that's who you are, that's who you are. And it's fine. I don't, I don't need to be a part of it. And now that I'm out of all of that, um, I feel much better with myself. And that's ultimately – I mean, I have to – I have to go to bed every night with myself and I want to, yeah. I want to be comfortable with that. Right. And it, it reminds me, you know, 
I don't know exactly what happened with that situation, but it just reminded me of myself. I don't know. I can be criticizy and judgy and all this stuff, or maybe I say something that's not so nice, but I've been in situations where like people are talking shit about somebody and then I'm like, yeah. And then I do it too. Of course. And then it comes back on me. Yeah. And, and I'm like, but what about all them? But so, you got to take ownership for what you said. Exactly. They didn't make you say that, right? Exactly. So I, I just try to not get involved or I don't know. I just try not to be negative when there's no place for it if, yeah. or if I don't need to. Look, at the end of the day, I just want to make records and, and live. Like, yeah. So there's a line on my new record that says, um, all I ever wanted was to follow my own heart, to die a better man than I was at the start. And I think that that sums up where I'm at right now. All I want to do is, is be the best person that I can be and be a good friend to people and be a decent fucking human being. And I want to die the best man that I can be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. And listen, uh, well, I guess we're winding down here. So I just want to say, Jim, thanks so much for giving us the time and talking to us. I mean, you've created so much music over the years that we just absolutely love. and. Uh, yeah, Tommy. No, I was going to say this was an absolute uh, like privilege to get to talk to you. I I really do. Uh, Wiretap Scars was just such a phenomenal record and such a influential part of my college career. And I really just um, I leaned on that record a lot when I was going through some hard shit, and it was just it, it helped me a lot. And I I really do appreciate the work you've done. And oh, thank you. I'll, Honestly, your your ethic about it and your your ideology is just is is reinforced all that of like, look, fuck them. It doesn't matter. Like I'm making stuff I love. So yeah. I, yeah, I truly appreciate that, Jim. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks for doing what you guys do. And uh, stay good. Stay good out there. Shit's going to get weird. Stay <laughs> good. good. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks, man. And uh, talk to you soon. There you have it, folks. Jim Ward. Yo, that was awesome. He's a no-nonsense, straight shooter, down-to-earth, classic bands. Sparta is one of my favorite bands. At the drive-in. I mean, come on. I also like his ethic about like what he appreciates about music and what drives him in music. It's like, he, there's a quote in there. He says something to the effect of, excuse me. He says something to the effect of, uh, if all you're bringing to the table is money, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Like he doesn't even give a fuck. He's like, I don't care. Like I care less about the money. Like what yeah. I care about is the quality of the content and like what we're doing. Yeah. Like he, he just seems like a t the type of dude he's going to do what he's going to do. And he's, he's not going to be swayed by money or bullshit or anything else. And I, I like that. I would like to think that I'm like that too. And, you know, I went back and tried to research again to see it why if it was like mentioned why he was not on on that at the drive-in reunion tour and album and the only thing i could find is a a quote from cedric the singer of at the drive-in saying something to the effect of jim didn't want to do it like he wasn't in it and that's yeah. not what jim said at all no not at all yeah it seemed like he said something that cedric didn't like and cedric had him removed from the project remember when jim was like 
remember when I was like, oh, when you when you when the band comes together, do you get like your marching orders? Like, this is what we're going to do, and this is what you have to do. He's like, it would never be that honest. <laughs> what are you yawning? Yeah, I'm sorry. The fuck, dude? We're in the middle of a show here. <laughs> what? This is boring to you? No, it's ten o'clock at night, though. <laughs> I know. I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> I'm tired of shit right now. I think the yeah. the, the thing though with like uh, that I think I appreciate about Sparta so much, and this is one of the reasons they're such a band that was like so close to my heart was um, a lot of my friends. And I talked about this during the show, but it's it it bears repeating is like. I, I had a lot of friends that would not listen to that type of music and I would play that uh, Wiretap Scars album and people would just be like, what is this? This is really good. Like, this is really good. What is this? I've never heard anything this like. And I'm like, yep, amazing band. It's one of our bands we could play for regular people and they would like it. I remember I was temping at this office and I would hand out paychecks to the architect's on this one floor and one of them had a Sparta sticker on his garbage can. And I was like, yep, he knows, he knows what's up. He's down. And I, I hope there's so much stuff we didn't even get into. I, we didn't get to talk about porcelain, their second album or, you know, kind of what's going on now. They played a show in New York city a couple of years ago. I wanted to ask how that tour was. I, I had tickets. I wanted to go. I asked two or three different people to go. They said no. So I just didn't go. I didn't want to go all the way from Flatbush into Manhattan, and I'm really pissed that I missed that show. Well, you know, at this point, when shows come back, I'm hoping there's a glut of them, like all at once. Just tons of great shows, amazing shit happening all right in a row, because it feels like people are itching to get back out, and once yeah. they have the opportunity, they're going to go crazy with it. I hope you're right. We're going to be hitting some shows for sure when they're back. Another question I wanted to ask Jim Ward, which I didn't realize until later. You know that when Jim was removed from the project, they went and got Sparta's other guitar player to fill in for him? Yep. Do you think he was pissed? Uh, how could you not be? I think, no, based on Jim's personality, I don't think he cared. I think he was probably like, sure, go ahead. Why would I want to den deny you this opportunity? Yeah, I think he, yeah. I think he's that mature. Yeah, yeah. Me, I would not be. I'd be like, <laughs> you're, you're dead to me. If you went, if you went and like started another podcast with someone, I'd be like, you're done. You're out. How could you betray me? Oh, I don't have the time for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, you must be really, you must be really tired. You're like, you're barely saying anything. No, I'm just I, I I think I'm in a like a weird place right now and I I I uh have been kind of like I don't know. I guess I'm like more than anything else I'm spacey just yeah. because I feel like my mind is wandering a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to there's a couple big things happening in my life that are like uh not life changing but they're definitely going to be life altering for a little while and i'm like a little bit anxious about it and i think part of when i'm anxious about things like that i get very introspective and i i think about those things a lot so i don't necessarily articulate it i'm just like oh yeah okay and so they, two big questions one what are these things and two how will they affect the show uh, let me start with two first. They won't affect the show. Okay. Uh, one is the, so the first big thing is, uh, intensely bo boring, but 
interest Give me the short version. Interest rates are very low, so we're refinancing our home loan. Okay. Uh, and it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of document production. You need all your stuff and, you know, you got to prove that you have income and that kind of shit. Um, the second thing is, is that, so Kelly is taking the, no, (laughs) remember I had a, I had the old snip snip in July. Yeah. Did we ever talk about that on this show? I don't think so. Uh, How was that? I may have actually mentioned it the one time because I remember I did a show where I was sitting on an ice pack for the majority of it. I don't know if we ever talked about that. I don't know. I, honestly, it's hard to think about like what gets recorded and what's something. I know I've told you, but I don't know if that was like a we were recording when I told you. Kind of thing. I forget a lot of what we talk about. Like, well, it depends. Certain things I forget and certain things I don't, but. By the time I go to post the episode, I'm like struggling to remember what we talked about to fill out the description. (laughs) And I used to do really long descriptions and then do my personal thoughts on the episode. And then I I eventually just got tired of that. So now I I just like, you know, I covered the main points and I put it up. I mean, it's a weekly show, dude. Here's a guy from this band. They talk about some stuff. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to it or don't. I don't know. I don't know what to fucking tell you. Oh, wait. So what's the thing? I interrupted you. Oh, yeah. So the first thing is the refinance of the house. And the second thing is Kelly got an email yesterday from uh, Human Resources that basically said, um, at this point in time, due to COVID, we are not allowing anyone to take unpaid leave. So potentially, Kelly could be going back to work at the end of this month, which means we, we need to figure out a lot of stuff. Um, the girls are self-sufficient. They can stay at home with me and continue virtual learning. Uh, but I can't watch a one-year-old and two seven-year-olds and manage a classroom. It's, it's a physical impossibility. Um, yeah. the other thing is, is that with Kelly going back to work, uh, the baby is bad, not bad. The baby struggles with taking a bottle. So she nurses once a day, like before she goes down for a nap in the afternoon. And I clearly can't do that. And if Kelly goes to work, she can't do that either. So I'm, I'm a little like in that headspace of like, all right, this threw kind of a monkey wrench into a plan that we had where we had gone through and said, okay, we have X amount in savings. Um, you know, my paycheck can cover the mortgage um, my other paycheck, you know, twice a month I get paid. So like the other paycheck can cover groceries and credit card bills. Like, like, but we need to, like, we just need to be a little bit more careful with our money. And like now that plan seemingly is out the fucking window. So it's like, yeah. And the other thing is, is that, I, and I don't know, I haven't spoken. We, Kelly was super tired last night. So we didn't get to really talk about it. And I think she was more exhausted from mentally thinking about it all day. Um, I don't think she's ready to go back. I think she feels it's unsafe. I think she feels like she potentially could get exposed at work and then bring it home to her family. Yeah. And that's, that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm sitting in a hotel room in St. Cloud right now. I've, I've been to an airport. I'll be flying back. I'm in offices around people. Um, yeah, man, it's scary. I I'm, I'm going to get a COVID test as soon as I go back, but I don't want to bring it home. To yeah. Romy and her daughter and our cat children. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's definitely uh, not cool. Not cool. So 
that's I, I, I apologize. I, I am a little bit deep in thought sometimes and I, my brain tends to, especially in times of like anxiety like this um, and the election's not helping either. <laughs> well, um, I'm looking at the results again. We still don't have final numbers, but right now it still stands at Joe Biden 264, Trump 214. So it's probably going to be Biden, right? Well, it comes down to those what what how many states are left for, right? Yeah, it looks like Joe Biden's going to get Nevada, and maybe Trump will get Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia. Yeah, so it, it I, I think the other thing um, that we need to consider when we're thinking about this is that Trump will not go quietly. Um, he is, and there was a thing i saw today on instagram that was like oh that's a little fishy and i don't know i can't back it up i didn't i didn't i didn't have enough time to look into it but um he was clearly leading in one state and then overnight somehow they found like an extra hundred thousand ballots and the the vast majority like 90 some odd percent and above were all for biden um and he has dispatched attorneys and and the national guard and all of these people to try to regulate this stuff but it's um it's seemingly spilt milk at this point you know uh what are you going to do undo and if there was if there was irregularities one how do you prove it and two what do you what the fuck do you do about it you disenfranchise a hundred thousand people because you don't feel like their votes fucking are valid like it it's a very sticky situation and I, I i'm very concerned about how he's going to handle it by starting a bunch of stupid lawsuits and i was going to say them, he is them no, not going anywhere he is a notorious notoriously litigious person he will you know dispatch a a a, a cadre of lawyers <laughs> yes post haste listen we're both tired and the yeah. way we've been recording the show lately, it's very confusing and very tiring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't know who we're talking to or when things are happening and everything's all mixed up. So we're hoping for some semblance of normalcy to return to the world. And look, a lot of people have been messaging us with very nice things. They're into the show. They like the show. We've been getting a lot of good feedback on recent episodes. And listen, if you listen to the show, thank you. I mean, when people message us, and say nice things about this show. It just, it really makes me feel good. It really makes, really makes me feel like we're moving towards something, you know? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So thanks to everyone who's writing us with, with nice things. I still haven't heard a negative comment about the show yet, which is awesome because I wouldn't be able to handle it anyway. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think people are just. Uh, I think that's one of those things that, like, with a lot of creative endeavors, and it, this is. I don't know if this is just me thinking the way I like when I hear someone has done something creative, uh, my last inclination is to say something negative. Like it's, right. it's literally the last thing on my list is like, I don't want to ever even, even if it's constructive, I don't want to ever criticize because especially if someone has spent enormous amounts of time, effort, money, blood, sweat, and tears, whatever, whatever they've expended. I don't want to minimize that by saying like, oh yeah, but I would have also done, or you could have also done. And it's like, look, uh, you know, everybody's a fucking Monday morning quarterback, you know, after the shit's done. Like I, I tend to accentuate the positive. So I think that's part of why we only hear positive things. 
Um, That's good. Yeah. And yeah, it's not like we're young kids anymore. When I was 16, 17, 18, I was like, this sucks. That sucks. Everything sucks. You know, unless it's the specific thing I like, it sucks. And I just don't do that anymore. Because like you said, if people are putting time and effort into it, I want to show some respect. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's like, especially when it comes down to like a lot of the people that we get feedback from are, you know, friends or friends of friends or acquaintances from the years or people that so were what you're saying from- is if this show opens up to the mainstream, then we're going to get hammered. Yes. <laughs> you know, so the, you, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what's going to happen. Once people, if, if this becomes popular enough that we have a large enough group, there will be, imme- think about it like this, like even people that like, the stuff that you do, if you even deviate slightly from it, they're going to have complaints because it's like everything on YouTube or anywhere on the internet. People feel a, people feel emboldened behind their keyboard or on, on their phone to, I'm just going to say this and see what fucking happens. And it's like 99 times out of a hundred, you would never say that to that first person's face. Never. You would absolutely, you would be panicking with what is their reaction going to be the instant that you started thinking about that conversation. For um, sure. No one is that, few people are that bold. I know a handful. Yeah. But the other thing is, is there's a very different, it's really different to be bold. There's a difference between bold and just being an asshole. Uh, there's one thing to say like, all right, you know what? I, I I don't like this because of something and I'm backing it up with evidence. Hey, I don't like the podcast because uh, you guys tend to not focus on the music enough or um, you, you guys talk about the same tropes over and over again. Like I can't listen to Tommy talk about teaching for another 40 minutes. Like, (laughs) all right, you know what? You, you got a point there. At least it's something that's, it's, that's based in reality. I get that. Yeah, uh, but think about it. We're we're two people, so all we can talk about is our experiences and what's interesting to us. Like, I like when people criticize Howard Stern. They're like, oh, he's talking about the same thing again. Dude's been on the radio for 40 years or something, 30 years, whatever. and he's, he's one person. Yeah. He has a finite list of things he's going to discuss. <laughs> There's... Take it or leave it. There's an, yeah, there's, yeah. Do you want to be entertained or, you know, like, I think the thing is, especially with like those type of, especially things that are serialized like that, like Stern or, you know, I was a big Opie and Anthony guy. Uh, they always used to say like, you know, uh, I'm going to like, especially uh, when somebody would go to tell a story, you know, nine, nine, like most of the time, Opie would interrupt and go, hey, 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 we've already told this story. And undoubtedly Norton or, or Anthony would go, yeah, but we have new listeners every single day. And maybe they weren't listening to people don't listen to every single fucking episode. Like you narcissist fucking dork. Like, well, if it's Opie and Anthony, they might not necessarily have new listeners every day. Oh, Oh, yeah. All right. So we're over time. So I'm going to say this. Thanks for listening. Thanks Jim for coming on like subscribe, share review, all that shit. Right. Yeah. Do stuff. Yeah, come on, help us out. All right, thanks everybody for listening, and until next time. Wow.